We, this morning, are going to jump into the talk right now, so change of pace a little bit. And uh, we have been in this series for a while on the book of Proverbs. This, in fact, is our last Sunday on Proverbs, which just, in some ways, seems amazing to me. It has gone by so, so quickly. We've uh, covered a different word each week. I think you might be able to see some of the words we covered up on the screen. Uh, Really trying to wrestle with what does it look like to be kingdom people as it relates to the book of Proverbs? How do we live out wisdom and act upon it in uh, in really good ways? And so uh, this morning we're going to be covering this last topic. We're going to try something today that could be an epic failure. Uh, or what we're hoping will start a conversation for weeks, uh, days, weeks, and and months to come uh, about how we understand the narrative of Scripture and its impact on our life. So uh, as that sets the stage, let's open with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll explain what the topic is this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you uh, would prepare our hearts for your message this morning. We ask that uh, not only today, but, but every Sunday that we find ourselves here, uh, every time we find ourselves in small group or, or in a place where we're studying your scripture, that uh, we would be open to reflect on our own lives, uh, to be honest with our own issues, uh, to accept the grace that you so freely give, uh, to be willing to be moved and challenged uh, and transformed by your words, Lord. Uh, So, Spirit, we ask that you move in this place. We ask that you uh, would be a spirit of conviction and a spirit of transformation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, If you guys can open your bulletin, how many people uh, read or saw the bulletin cover and understood the joke there? Fifty Shades of Grey, right? It's Russ's favorite book, uh, so that's why uh, we're... That's a total... We just wanted to start out with a joke, you guys. So, uh, you may have put the pieces together. Uh, The word for today is drink, and drink is a euphemism for sex uh, in the scripture. So, our topic today is really a proverbial conversation on sex. I told uh, my 15-year-old this week that uh, I was going to be speaking on sex when the community gathered, and uh, she kindly asked me if I would find a guest speaker. Um, So, there's some of us. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Welcome, Carson. Yes. Uh, So some of us in the room may be a little bit more uneasy this morning than others, but uh, we're going to tackle a subject that I think is really, really important. So buckle up. We're not going to try to mince words. We're going to attack it head on. And uh, here we go. All right. So let's uh, let's begin this morning with a quote. Uh, Marlene Dietrich, a German-American actress, uh, kind of in like the early, uh, early 20th century, said this, sex in America is an obsession, in other parts of the world, a fact. To say that America is obsessed with sex, uh, I would go out on a limb and say is a pretty significant understatement. As a society, I believe it could be argued uh, that this time in history, we as a culture are more consumed with sex than any other time in history. Think about it this way. Just pause for a moment, maybe even close your eyes if you need to, reflect on your last week the things you saw, the things you heard. It doesn't take long to see that sex has infiltrated all aspects of our lives. We are a very overly sexed culture, if you could say it that way. 
recently, Russ and I uh, trade CDs a lot. It's a joke, guys. Come on. We, we got to lighten up a little bit. Uh, many of you have never seen a CD, but those were things. Uh, but anyways, Russ let me borrow his Iggy Azalea CD, uh, one of his favorite artists. Uh, there's a new song, Black Widow. And I'm just going to read you a couple of lines here. Uh, I'm going to lo- 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 love you until it hurts. Just to get you, I'm doing whatever works. You've never met nobody that'll do you how I do you, that'll bring you to your knees. Praise Jesus, hallelujah. So that's a nice, at that moment, it's a nice little holy pause that yeah. she puts in there for us. Good. Uh, I'm going to make you beg for it, plead for it, till you feel like you breathe for it, till you do anything and everything for it. I want you to, I want you to fiend for it, wake up and dream for it, till it's got you gasping for air. And you learn for it till they have a CAT scan and check your mind. This just gets more and more ridiculous. Uh, but really, here's why we say this. is This, this song gives us uh, a really interesting window into our culture and how our culture understands sex. And this is but one illustration uh, as that sex has infiltrated all aspects of our lives. We could give you a hundred different songs right now uh, or movies or whatever, but uh, sex really is the preeminent theme in a lot of these places. And I think uh, this is where we begin to get this idea that our culture is overly sexed. So I'm going to pause here and I'm going to say, can we all agree with the idea that our culture is infiltrated with sex and that we are overly sexed as a society? Yeah, like that's, we, we don't have to build this argument anymore, right? Because we got a lot, we have 14 pages of material to cover this morning. So, uh, so yes, I think we can all look at that and just say, absolutely. It doesn't take, uh, it doesn't take a lot to see that reality. Yeah, so as Kevin said, we're not going to spend a lot of time trying to reinforce that idea. We're just going to take it as a given. So this morning, instead, what we want to do is talk about narratives, And because sex is such a dominating force in our culture, we are always in the place where we are writing narratives or stories about sex. So here are a few of the more prominent cultural narratives that uh, we were talking about this past week. First, uh, sex is not spiritual, it's just an animal instinct, right? One of the most popular songs right now, Animals, right? There's this narrative that teaches that the only ethic that affects sex is our animal urge. It's a belief that there are no lasting effects to engaging in sex outside of the physical effects. So there's no emotional baggage that we need to worry about. There's no spiritual ramifications. Sex is very simply something that doesn't even need to be controlled. It just needs to be expressed whenever the opportunity arises. Narrative one. Narrative two. It's the anyone at any time narrative. With this narrative, sex is seen as our absolute right to have with anyone at any time. The narrative is propagated probably mostly through media as it depicts individuals engaging in sex with multiple partners, again, without ramification. This is the the scenes in movies where it often begins as two people walk in the front door and then it leads into the living room and then ultimately into the bedroom for this like four to six hour sexual experience where both people reach climax at the same exact time and then they just immediately fall asleep or they get up and they go about their day. Speaking as somebody who has had sex before, this is not tended to be my experience. (laughs) 
That one went off well. Yeah, that it did. Was, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well done. Well done. We'll do that one in the second service, too, probably. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Number three. Number three. We also have this, uh, I got married, therefore I no longer have sex narrative. All right, so many go into marriage thinking that, man, I cannot wait. This is going to be amazing. I'm going to be having sex all the time. As Kevin just described, we get home from work, rip each other's clothes off and enjoy. Uh, then afterwards, a nice dinner and a movie or something, right? That it's just going to be a regular occurrence. But then some of us come to face the reality that we're two kids deep into this relationship now. We're extended in our mortgage. We're working late. And the odds that both of us kind of want to start doing the dance at the exact same time are limited, okay? And so we find ourselves moving in this narrative. This is what some people think toward the place where the guy is always wanting it and the girl never seems to uh, be up for it. Which leads us to the let's make sure that we're compatible narrative. So that above narrative kind of drives this one because we've all heard that sex in marriage becomes really stale. And so we begin to think and convince ourselves that if I can uh, make sure that I am sexually compatible with this person that I like, then maybe our sex life in marriage, if we choose to get to that committed point in our relationship, maybe it won't become such a drag. Ultimately, uh, these narratives and many of the narratives that we didn't even touch on, there's, there's hundreds of narratives that we could play out, uh, but they have begun to shape our cultural understanding of sex. Sadly, they have become the primary lens with which we understand our relationships, and in a lot of ways, we understand our own identity. Ultimately, this leads us to have a perverse understanding and a perverse approach to sex. With that in mind, Russ and I believe two things. The first is this. Those sexual narratives, the sexual narratives that we didn't even touch on this morning that are daily shoved in our faces are absolutely not true. The second thing we believe is this. The scripture speaks openly and honestly and truthfully about sex and how we are to understand it. Now, with that said, we will admit that the church has historically, from our perspectives, done a poor job talking about sex. Our small group recently, just this last Wednesday, knowing I was going to speak about this, I kind of threw out this, uh, this topic to our small group and said, hey, what's been your experience growing up in the church, uh, hearing about sex? What, what have you experienced in the past? And the resounding uh, sense was that the predominant church experience uh, on the topic of sex has been, first of all, the topic is a taboo. And if it was approached, it was approached with this clinical distance with very, very black and white answers which is really interesting to me. It's interesting to Russ because the scripture doesn't even approach sex in the same way. Yeah, we would say that the scripture speaks quite a bit about the topic of sex and even speaks about it in very erotic ways. You can turn, if you want, to the book of Proverbs chapter 5. It's also going to be here on the screen in a moment. This is where we get the word drink that we're looking at. It says this, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. 
Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. If you look through that short text from the book of Proverbs, you will see that the metaphors in there are actually pretty gritty and erotic. They're word pictures, word pictures about the act of sex, word pictures about certain members or parts of the body. And uh, you see this throughout Scripture. This is but one example of how the Bible does not pull any punches when addressing both the beauty and effects of sex. Famously, Song of Solomon, which uh, we refer to as the sexiest of all biblical scripture. Uh, You'll notice as you read through the Song of Solomon that these are not just docile poems about love, but they are actually vivid descriptions of a woman's body, vivid descriptions of desired sexual acts. Here's Song of Solomon 4. Awake, O north wind, O come, O south wind, blow upon my garden and let its spices flow. I'm not totally sure what that means, but it means something. Uh, Let my beloved come to his garden and eat of its choicest fruits. Song of Solomon 7 says this, Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. In uh, junior high, when I first discovered the Song of Solomon, this is when my Bible reading really took off. (laughs) And I thought, maybe pastoral ministry. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Why not? Yeah. Uh, All all, all kidding aside, uh, one of the narratives, one of the narratives of Scripture is that sex is beautiful. It really is. That your partner is to be desired. That lovemaking is an act that draws two people together in a way that is both physical and spiritual. Scriptures that speak about sex are not just uh, in the Old Testament. They can be found throughout the Bible. And the traditional stale approach to talking about sex would be to walk through uh, this text in Proverbs and just pull out some virtues, sorry, virtues like loving your wife, the virtue of being with one person, the virtue of enjoying sex. But this approach really just hangs principles on verses and then guilts people into adhering to a prescribed perspective of this given passage. My estimation is that this approach leads to definitions about how far is too far, what is right, what is wrong. That this morning will not be our approach. We are striving to speak to an audience of people in all different stages of life and all different understandings of sex, and we want to honor the text so that it will continue along the lines of this idea of narrative. So what we want to do this morning is kind of look at this overarching narrative of the scriptures as it relates to the ethics of sex. Uh, To get us started, what we want to do is just to look at one quick quote from N.T. Wright to help us kind of frame some of our thinking. He says this, But it's important that we do not reduce the Bible to a collection of true doctrines and right ethics. There are plenty of true doctrines and right ethics there, of course, but they come within a larger thing, which is the story of how the Creator is rescuing and restoring the whole creation. That is, rescue and restoration of humans at the heart of it. In other words, it isn't about, quote-unquote, do we allow this or that, To ask the question that way is already to admit defeat, to think in terms of behavior as a set of quasi-arbitrary and hence negotiable rules. The idea that N.T. Wright is getting at, what he's trying to express, is that 
everything in our life is part of a larger narrative, right? That we perhaps can only understand our part in the story when we understand the story as a whole. It's easy for us sometimes to try to pull our story out of the grand story and just say, this is the story I'm writing. But the reality here is that we're not going to fully understand and grasp this idea of sexuality unless we understand it in light of the whole story. So we'll start from the beginning. I just want to remind all of us, as we've talked many times in the past, that we are a part of an ever-moving story. From the very beginning of time, God breathed and everything came into being. And he's been in this process of continuing to create us and continuing to form the story. So when we approach the text, it's important for us to recognize that what we're doing is looking at it from many different perspectives. That is, God revealed himself in a progressive way to us. He even brought us to this place where he revealed the scriptures to us. And that when we as readers look at it, we come at it from our perspective. Let me give you a, a picture to illustrate. This is my nice drawing skills. Yeah, thank you. I'm not in art. Um, so the person on the left, if you look at the person on the left, they're looking forward, really, into this text, right? They're looking from a forward perspective. The person on the right of the text is seeing the scripture from the perspective of looking back into the text, right? This creates unique perspectives for all of us. So first, the revelation of the person on the left is forward. It is moving that person more toward the teaching of Jesus. From their place in the story, the teaching of Scripture is a major shift forward in their cultural and ethical approach to the world. The person looking back, might be easy to think about it as us, looking back into the text, is reading the ethic as like a frozen ethic in time, or it's this, this uh, teaching is frozen in time, meaning that the teaching or command was spoken into a specific context to a specific people, for a specific reason, and we are charged with understanding that teaching, teaching, and then bringing it into our current context. Okay, so hang with us. This this will get easier, I promise. Yes, we believe that the teaching of Scripture is always in a movement. You see that kind of arrow at the at the bottom. The story is always moving, and the trajectory of this story is one that is always towards redemption. Okay, so it's important for us to say it, and I'll say it again in a different way. The teaching of Jesus and the scripture as a whole is leading all of us toward redemption, toward wholeness, toward reconciliation. So what we're going to do is try to give you an illustration of this before we get to the issue of sexuality. We're going to give you an illustration related to the treatment of people, specifically slavery. So it's going to all make sense, hopefully, in a moment. Just continue to hang with us. The person on the left... When they look at the scriptures and the teachings about slavery throughout the, the Bible, they would look at it and see everything as a monumental leap forward from where they were as a culture. So the way that people were treated in slavery as a culture was just abhorrent. The teaching of the scriptures moved people in a dramatic leap forward as they read the text. Now, the person on the right, us, looking back into the text and what's written in the text, looks at it and goes, well, duh. Yeah, there shouldn't be slavery. There's no way there should be slavery. That we are free, that we should be equal, that we should all be one, that there's this true spirit we understand in the scriptures of equality. But is that really what is being communicated? So think of it in 
grand narrative, or think of this grand narrative in time segments, four to be exact. You'll see right up here. Okay, so on the far left, you have creation to 10 words, or the 10 commandments. Okay, so that's one time segment. The second one is law to the New Testament, before the New Testament begins. So kind of that period of the Old Testament uh, where the law reigns true. That third period is the New Testament to the church age, or today. So everything from New Testament to current. And then you have the final time segment, which is the eternal age, the kingdom of God when it's fully realized. This is the age that has not come. We tracking here? Okay. So look at slavery and its movement throughout scripture. Uh, now, just trust us on this. We don't have time to pull out every single passage dealing with slavery. So you are going to have to trust us a little bit on this. If you want to talk about this after the service, we would love to talk about this. But trust us on this. At the beginning, the treatment of people, as Russ said, was barbaric, absolutely barbaric. So this is in that, uh, that, that first time segment. The attitude was an attitude of complete ownership. People were seen as property. Slaves were used for labor and for reproductive purposes. Sexual violation or taking the life of a person was viewed as just kind of a normative reality of owning another human being. The first major teaching in scripture changed that perspective and was a monumental shift forward. However, it still came up a bit short from our perspective as we read back into it because foreign slaves were still encouraged. Sexual violation uh, of a slave versus a free woman was seen differently. The value of a slave's life was different than the value of a free person's life. They were valued less. Later in the Old Testament, so we're now into the second section. Later in the Old Testament, you see some laws reflecting further progression towards the treatment of people, the treatment of slaves. Uh, a couple here. There's a list behind me. There is a generous uh, or a more generous number of days off. There was a release of Hebrew slaves after six years. You can continue to kind of read through those, ultimately to admonitions of genuine care for Slaves. So what Kevin has described is those two first two segments of time. And as we continue to move across kind of that spectrum, we get into the New Testament teaching on slavery. New Testament teaching, I'll just highlight a couple of verses to give you a quick look at it. In Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, these are teachings of Paul. He says this, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. He goes on a little bit later to say, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way, which is with respect, with dignity. Uh, giving up the use of threats because you know that both you and they have the same master in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. They're starting to draw on this picture of there's equality. Now, there's still slavery, but you are both viewed through God's lens the same. So treat one another with respect and slaves obey. A little later, Colossians 3.22, slaves obey your early, earthly masters in every respect. Okay, What you will notice... If you were to continue to do a study throughout the New Testament on this issue of slavery, you would notice that the predominant teaching is about mutual love and respect for one another. But there is no, there is no explicit teaching in the New Testament against slavery. Period. There is no abolish it now statements throughout the New Testament. So what you notice is that we, looking back into the text, have begun to understand the spirit of the text in such a way that we take the teachings of Jesus, hold on for a moment, further than the text teaches. Let that sit for a moment. We have taken 
and acted upon the teachings of Scripture in a way that is further than the text actually teaches. It's teaching mutual respect, and it is assuming the, the norm is slavery. We have, in our right understanding now, looked back into that and said, in the consummation of all things, at the end of time, there is this beautiful thing that will happen that's described in another passage, that there will be neither slave nor free, Jew, Gentile, male, female, that we will all be one in Christ, right? That's where we're ultimately headed. So we, reading back into the text, say, if that's where we're headed, let us act upon that now and begin to live into the freedom that the kingdom will ultimately realize. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? So what we're trying to do is strive to live into what the scriptures is teaching in a progressive movement forward and continuing to move the trajectory of that toward the reconciliation of all things. The same movement or trajectory can be seen with other examples. I'll throw a couple out very briefly. Corporal punishment or discipline begins with life for a life, then moves tooth for a tooth, and then ultimately Jesus says no. That is not how we treat one another. There is no uh, corporal punishment. The treatment of women, they're originally seen as property. They have less than an adult status. But then we begin to see inheritance laws. We see divorce rules that are beginning to protect women more. Ultimately to a a treatment toward women that uh, changed in the New Testament to complete equality. We see it with divorce. We see it with many different examples of this trajectory moving to the final redemption, to reconciliation through all things. So with this as a framework, we hope that that helps us to understand Scripture's take on sexuality. Before we look at that, let's get an idea of what was happening, what was normative in uh, ancient Near East culture at this point related to sexuality, okay? Incest was absolutely rampant at this point. Bestiality was a normative practice. Prostitution was just an assumed thing. There were sex slaves. There were concubines. Polygamy was just kind of, uh, it was like everybody was just polygamous. That was the right of the male to have as uh, many partners, as many wives as he could. Right, it's a bleak picture in the ancient Near Eastern culture, right? That, that's what you're looking at. That's the context into which the scriptures were written. So when God first speaks to this idea of sexuality, and he gives the ten words. One of those words was around the idea of there shall be no adultery. Don't covet another man's wife. Do not commit adultery with another man's wife. That was the first major teaching. While that was a huge leap forward for the culture, it did not deal with the issues that Kevin just addressed. You have all that stuff, and the only thing that is highlighted within the first teachings of, of, in scripture is this idea that there should be no adultery. Don't take something that does not belong to you. If it doesn't belong to anyone else, take as much of it as you want. But if it belongs to someone, don't take it, right? That's the first major teaching. Then you go a little bit further. And in the Torah and the law, there begins to be statements about all the things that are listed. No bestiality. Uh, it starts to begin to address um, prostitution. It begins to address concubines. All that stuff begins to be addressed. But what isn't addressed in that second little section in the law all the way to the New Testament, polygamy isn't addressed. Concubines isn't really addressed. I mean, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, right? The guy that wrote this. He had some experience, right? So he's writing into this, and he writes that way. And then last is multiple divorces. So what the culture started to do, or what the Hebrews started to do, is go, oh, I can't have sex with multiple partners. Okay, I'll get married. 
Okay, I'm done with you now. I'll get married again. Okay, I'm done with you now. I'll get married again. And that was their version of having sex with as many people as they wanted because they could just continue to divorce. Which is why when we get to the New Testament teaching, there's some new further revelation related to sexuality. Here would be a couple. One of the main things about moving this uh, ethic to the ideal is that there should be one partner for life. That there should be monogamy. That is one of the biggest teachings throughout the New Testament. Period, end of story, one partner is the way that the New Testament begins to teach about it. Jesus then goes further and says, hey, you talked in the Old Testament about this idea of adultery. I'm going to take it a step further. If you even look at a woman with lust, you've begun to commit adultery in your heart. He's, he's like increasing the tightness of this particular idea. And then there's a stricter teaching on divorce in the New Testament. You cannot just continue to divorce, divorce, divorce for the sake of multiple partners, but rather be committed to one for life, right? That's the idea. We get into the eternal age, and um, here's the kicker in the eternal age. And we don't really talk about this very much in the church. When we get to the eternal age, there will be no sex, and there will be one marriage. That's the marriage of Christ and his church. Okay, so it says even in Matthew twenty two thirty for the uh, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. So you have this idea that there's a movement to the text. Now, if we were to sit here and draw that movement, and we will here in a moment, if we were to draw it for all the other things that Kevin mentioned, corporal punishment, the treatment of women, slavery, um, etc., 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 every Part of that trajectory is a forward movement toward more freedom, toward more wholeness, toward equality, toward reconciliation, toward beauty. Everything is like moving forward, forward, forward till we have the ultimate ethic in heaven. What's interesting about the issue of sexuality is that it's a bit counterintuitive. If you actually look at the trajectory, it's the exact opposite. So look at this next you see that only in the beginning, only adultery is explicitly condemned. Then you move further to extramarital sexual activity is forbidden. Some of the stuff we just talked about. To the point where the goal in the New Testament is lifelong monogamy or even, as Paul says, celibacy. To the point in the kingdom where it's the end of all sexual activity. This is why many of you are like, man, I want to get married before I get... Uh, but Jesus comes back, right? So... <laughs> There, I mean, you know, you're thinking it, right? So there, there is this movement that becomes, it's counterintuitive because everything else is widening. Everything else is growing. Everything else is a movement forward. This is becoming narrower and narrower and narrower in its focus over time. We uh, refer to it as the narrowing ethic. That is how we're supposed to understand this. That's the lens which with we are to see it. So if this perspective, this overarching narrative is true, then we need to get back to some application points. How does this then rewrite our cultural narratives? If we believe there is a narrowing ethic, how should it rewrite our cultural narratives? We have three points, and these are really the take-home points, the things. If you were to leave with anything, uh, these, uh, these are it. The first one, always strive for the ideal. You first have to ask yourself, are you serious about giving this life, the sexual aspect of your life, to Christ? Are you willing to give that up to Christ? 
At no point have we ever, will we, or will we ever say that following Jesus is easy. We will not stand up here and try to convince you that living a life of sexual purity comes naturally, because it does not. We were both in middle school, we were both in high school, we both dated, we've both been, been engaged, we both have been married men. We know how hard this can be. We are subjected to the same temptations that everybody else is. We are all playing on the same page right here. That's why we often have to ask ourselves, ask each other, hey, how are you doing in this aspect of your relationship? How is your sexual purity? How does that look like? What does that look like in your life right now? But the truth remains, no matter how hard this is, the truth remains, we are to live lives of sexual purity. This is the ideal that we are striving for. First Thessalonians says it this way, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each, uh, each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And to your right, said it this way. He said, we need to remind ourselves that the entire Biblical sexual ethic is deeply counterintuitive. All human beings, some of the time, and some human beings, most of the time, have deep, heartfelt longings for kinds of sexual intimacy or gratification. That could be multiple partners, pornography, whatever. Which do not reflect the Creator's best intentions for His human creatures. Intentions through which new wisdom and flourishing will come to birth. Sexual restraint is mandatory for all, Difficult for most and extremely challenging for some. God is gracious and merciful, but this never means, quote-unquote, so his creational standards don't really matter after all. So we'll never be able to reach this ideal, this narrowing ethic, if we strive to do it in a vacuum. That is why we talk quite a bit about the idea of community. That community is essential if we are to have accountability along the way, if we're to walk with one another along the way, if we're actually to encourage each other toward this ideal. Brings us to point two, fidelity. This ideal needs to be lived out daily within committed relationships as well. Fidelity is defined this way. Faithfulness to a person, cause, or belief demonstrated by continuing loyalty and support. If you think sexual perversion goes away when you get married, then you are a total idiot because it does not. And in fact, I would say, and I think many would maybe agree with me this way, that it actually becomes harder. This ideal of the narrowing ethic needs to be lived out just as earnestly when we are in committed marriage relationships than it does for somebody who is single. We need to understand that. We believe the clear teaching of Scripture is that sex should always take place only at the center of a committed relationship. By committed relationship, we mean with one partner. And by one partner, we mean a marriage vow before God, partner for life, which the pattern throughout the narrative, throughout the story of Scripture, is that these people are making vows before witnesses. No matter how we want to get around it, the Bible makes it clear that two shall become one. And we're not just talking about the marriage covenant, but what we're talking about is sexuality, right? The vow of marriage is ratified, really, as a commitment, as a vow 
by the act of marriage. Right? That's why we say the marriage has been consummated. The act of marriage kind of validated the vow or the commitment before God. Which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you not know that your, member, or your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, and this should be familiar to you because it's a teaching about the idea of marriage, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit, therefore flees sexual immorality. The idea of Paul's teaching is this, that if you engage in sex with someone, you are, in some unique, physical, spiritual way, becoming one with that person. That's just the reality of it. I mean, we hate to say it that way, but you are becoming one with someone just like you are becoming one with a spouse in marriage. I one uh, time remember I was in a conversation with a gentleman. He was asking me about uh, some things, and he said, what do you think about sex before marriage? And I said, well, I, I think that any sex outside of marriage is the joining of two lives into one life. And he looked at me, and he goes, wait a second. And I said, yes, like when you join two together, the text makes it very clear all throughout the Scriptures, really, that the two become one. So then he said, so like... I've got like 10 wives right now. And I was like, kind of, sort of. And I don't want to say that, but in some weird, mysterious way, that's what's happening. Which is why sex is not just an animal instinct. It's why it has deep emotional and spiritual things that come along with it. It's why there's baggage that comes with sex. It, it, it happens, Right? And I think the challenge is living in a society that says there is no baggage associated with it at all. But the problem is there, there is. I, I don't think I've ever met anyone that at some level, either small or great, has not said after having multiple partners or partners before marriage that at some level it ha- they haven't wrestled with it, right? Now, this is why we believe that the scriptures put such an emphasis on the idea of a monogamous relationship, that it's one partner, because what it's supposed to do is reflect this image of a relationship with Christ, that there's only one love. That's why in order to understand this teaching on sexuality, we have to look at it through the lens of fidelity. Which brings us to our third point, and uh, really the most beautiful part of this message is that we have God's grace. Amen. There is God's grace. Christ's redemptive love covers all of our mistakes. That is why if you're sitting here uneasy because you've already given away your virginity or you've uh, engaged in inappropriate relationship outside of your marriage or because you struggle with pornography or because you're living with your boyfriend or whatever that issue is, that's why Christianity is known as the religion of endless new beginnings. We have Christ's grace, and that is beautiful, and that is hopeful, and we should rest in that. However, grace does not give us the green light to continue to live the same life. Paul says this in Romans 6, what shall we say? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. If you have a desire to change, then you will need to make some hard decisions. We will need to make hard decisions. Hear us when we say this. We are here to help. If this community is not about helping each other, then we are missing the entire point of this message. This is something that we need to do together. So here are some examples. If pornography is your issue, get rid of your computer. You can use the library's computer. You can call me, come to my house and use my computer. I don't care what it is, but if you're willing and wanting to desire and desiring to change, then help us help you to change. Move out of your girlfriend's house, even though it doesn't make financial sense. We will help you find a new living arrangement. Call me next time you want a booty call. Don't call me for the booty call. Call me so that I can talk you not into making the next phone call. I'm going to try to bring us back from that one. Shut down the flirtatious relationship that you have with your coworker that your spouse doesn't know about. So we make light and we make jokes and it helps to bring a little bit of levity, but this is absolutely critical. We are 100 percent serious with this. If you're not willing to make a change and make hard decisions, nothing will change in your life. Yeah, and we want you to hear that um, we're so serious about it that one of the things that I love about New Community is that both Kevin and I this week spent more time with people in meetings, spent more time coaching people, more time talking through issues like this with people than we did on this talk. Why? Because the idea is what happens during the week is far more important than what happens here for an hour and a half. This is so important also, but it pales in comparison to how we're called to live the rest of the week, right? And we want as a church to be about the other six days. This seventh day is great. It should be a celebration. It should be a time of learning, but it should motivate us to be people of the other six days in mission, in lifestyle, in our efforts with other people, all of that. So we also want to encourage you with this, that this should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end of it. So don't hear this and go, okay, well, that's the be-all, end-all of a talk on sex. No, it's the beginning of a conversation. Push back on it. Let's talk about it. What do you disagree with? What do you agree with? What can we do to continue to reinforce this message among us as a community? All right, let's pray, and then we will jump back into singing about the grace that we're allowed to live in. All right, let's pray.